This is April 1st, 2016, and we've finally finished this episode. <laughs> Enjoy, and sorry for the audio quality in, in some parts. Welcome to the Clues Chronicle. I'm Kay. And I'm Hoy. This is issue nine, a new type of episode we will call Clues Examines the Science Gods. And in this issue, we will look at Sir Isaac Newton, a god of the science priesthood, and some of his ways of doing science. In general, Clues Forum is about communicating to the entire world as efficiently and cogently as possible the flaws and disagreements in the official epistemology. I hope I pronounced that right, Kay. Yeah. What it can often add up to is our uncovery of willful deceptions or willful misguidance of the body of truth for the profit of the misleaders. And this is one of the hardest things for genuinely curious, empathic people to believe. We do have people totally lying to our faces about huge things. In our adventures of investigating things for ourselves, we've learned some effective habits in spotting these characters, and if you'd like some vicarious experience yourself, try listening to issue one and two of our podcast, and that's the interview between Simon Shack and me, as we encountered and even interacted with strange personages trying to shame us or even threaten us for asking questions. First, though, I want to ask you, Kay, what is the latest thing you've noticed about how to identify these people who aren't here for good reasons? Well, I identify them by the information they give out. Oh, of course, right. It's bad information. It's bad science. No matter how likable they are, it turns out some of these people worshipped in our culture, like Einstein and Newton, were giving out flawed information that people sopped up. And the more people sop it up, the more people think, hey, this stream is all right. It's not poisoned. Look how popular it is. You know, they also give us all these words that aren't right. They're not correct. Yeah, they give us even words for themselves. Like they'll say shill, you know, accusing people of being a shill. Yeah, shills, but kind of more like moles, don't you think? Yeah, it's like they don't want us to use language that might actually more clearly identify them as agents. So they say shill, which just means someone who's shilling something. Kind of like a salesman, actually, I guess. So, on to science gods. Why are we doing this new segment? Because the foundation of science is being used to prove things we know are lies. And so we're being kind of pushed by the propagandists back to square one. Like rockets. Are they a problem? Yep. Whoa, whoa. You're not just pre-concluding that science is wrong and going from there, are you? Is that what you're doing? No. We actually looked very carefully at the threshold of where the rockets officially turn into the invisible speck the horizon line officially bends into a curve. And all these things that the average person sees animated in film or video at the point because it's just beyond our non-technological senses. And we've seen problems with that glue. 
the seams are not right. It's like a poorly constructed quilt. Yeah. And so when we asked ourselves, why did they patch this here? Why did they fake this? We find out, wait a minute, they might have needed to fake this because it physically cannot happen. And then we say, oh, and we re-examine the science. It's a possibility, not a certainty. That's why they do it. Right. Like it's a possibility that the reason they need to do it is because it's physically impossible. Combine that with all the reports of exploding rockets, killing pilots, or aeronauts, and then we find that it's pretty much the theme of all the science we take for granted. We're being told that these possibilities, so-called proofs in mathematics, are the absolute law. And this is accompanied with fake videos, and the only thing pushing that is pretty much the confidence of the salesmen of these things, whom you often see lapping it up themselves, or at least having the appearance of believing themselves getting excited about it. That's called advertising. And we might consider some scientists very good admin, or hired, knighted, and sanctified because they were good at promoting what someone wanted to be promoted. After this song, we'll share some things that you might not have known about Sir Isaac Newton, some bogus elements of his science that you're not encouraged to question. And perhaps you will become a scientist yourself after recognizing you can answer some questions that never really properly got answered after centuries or even millennia of people asking about them. Far up in the sky I see a satellite Thank you. 
my line um i did some research on this uh i did some research on this isaac newton guy oh what'd you find i took some biographies from various places like a home encyclopedia which really does treat him like he personally discovered every single thing he's credited with uh and some internet sites so i'll just go into it isaac barrow is was his mentor and helped Newton by recommending him to mathematician John Collins. Newton assumed Lucasian professorship at Cambridge. You say that? What is that again? Lucasian. Lucasian? Or maybe Lucasian. Okay, lay it on me. What is that? Apparently this guy named Lucas created this professorship, and ever since then, people who hold that position are called uh, Lucasian professors. Barrow developed tangent formulas that are close to the precision of calculus. A lot of people were developing things close to that at the time. Newton developed more logic-based principles to get to the development of calculus at a level that would become later useful for all of the things that calculus does. Now, Christian Huygens, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and French Jesuits among others, apparently took issue with Newton's work in optics, for which he was doing a professorship. There was a debate about light as a particle or as a wave. So even back then, people were not agreeing about, is this a particle or is this a wave? Even today, we don't know. But Newton was so adamant that it's a particle. Another person who took issue was Robert Hooke. And it's actually hard to talk about Newton's biographies without also mentioning Hooke. I mean, the encyclopedia didn't have any problem just glossing over the fact that they might have been inventing kind of the same things at the same time. But he built some of the earliest Gregorian telescopes and apparently took early observations of the rotations of Mars and Jupiter. In 1665, he inspired the use of microscopes for scientific exploration with his book Micrographia, based on his microscopic observations of fossils. So Hooke was an early proponent of evolution. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? He's among the people who are talking about evolution in similar terms, and we'll get back to that. This is according to Wikipedia. He came near an experimental proof, which, I mean, the trans- that basically translates to he didn't prove that gravity follows an inverse square law, and nobody probably really has. So to summarize, um, Hooke is a character that accused Newton of stealing his ideas, and Newton said he owned them first, and things like that. Basically, this inverse square law thing was being tossed around. They figured, just like other things, gravity fades at a distance. It's probably a circle like everything else in the universe. It's probably at this uniform ratio called the inverse square law, but it's all just speculation with each other over this. All right, so what is the inverse square law? As you get distant 
from the center of a sphere, the surface of that sort of expanding sphere as you're doing like spherical cross-sections of a solid sphere of some kind of force or energy or something like that goes to this specific proportion which is related to 4 pi but it's not important to really go into the detailed math about that he did say that he believes bodies have a simple motion moving in a straight line believing straight to be simple mind you unless moved from that by another force which would cause a curvature even admitting that a circle is possible the whole thinking that i'm getting at here is that that straight is simple and curves are complex that's a pretty modern perspective. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, we'll get back to him later, wrote, I have diverse definitions for the straight line. The straight line is a curve, any part of which is similar to the whole, and it alone has this property, not only among curves, but among sets. So he's basically saying, well, a straight line is kind of part of the set of many different curves. That's not exactly what I'm talking about when I say straight versus curved thinking. In all the debates that are going on during this time, there seems to be a kind of revolution going on in thought about old thinking and new thinking. And it seems a little overlooked to me that all these official biographies, whether they're for Newton or against Newton, they're pointing out that straight lines and measurements in calculus are kind of the new way of cataloging everything by this scientific mechanistic thought. It's how simulation and video game designers work, not the universe. But the point of math is to get complex things into human terms, really, and each culture or even each human, that can mean a different thing. So it's fitting that according to a biography of Newton at University of St. Andrews in Fife, Scotland, Newton was re-inspired to study geometry when he read that parallelograms upon the same base and between the same parallels are equal. That got him super excited. That's a parallel lines in a quadrilateral. Right. He's getting super excited about quadrilaterals. Woohoo! Go quads! He's like, maybe the universe is made of quadrilaterals, right, at this point. I can only imagine what inspired devotion in Newton over so simple a philosophy as describing parallels, but I guess it had something to do with predictability and grid-like thinking, which atheists or heretics at the time, kind of a rather mechanistic Western thinkers, are often attracted to just from a standard aesthetic standpoint. It seems like Newton and his contemporaries are arguing about things that are actually aesthetic and spiritual, but it's all supposed to be science, right? Mm-hmm. Well, can- it is It is science, though, Hoy, because I'm a mathematician myself, and math is all about predictability. We want to be able to predict. We want to make equations that can be repeated over time. So in math, the idea of a function is something that can be predicted and repeated is huge. So, you know, I perhaps they turn that also into a spiritual quest. Well, I think you're onto something there, because... Uh, one of the overlooked spiritual tenets of this mechanistic system of of perfect predictability of nothing changing is something like Shermer says, which is, if you give us one free miracle, we'll explain the rest. (laughs) Right. You know, that free miracle is what, the Big Bang or something like that. So Mm -hmm. what is this inverse square law anyway? It basically means a sphere with different effects the closer or further you are to it at a particular predictable ratio. It's a basic assumption, and it's not a huge deal to apply to the universe unless, like the math worshippers, you absolutely need a formula. Again, sparked by an unknown free miracle at the so-called beginning of so-called time, to keep going like a clock. Then it's like identifying a saint or a prophet. You see the inverse square principle, and not Zeus was responsible for this motion. 
well, okay, it doesn't explain everything, but inverse square principle has something to do with it, and that means, well, it means we've named another thing that our brains were built to understand in simplistic terms. Go us. Math is an agreement based on logical observations rather than an agreement based on myth. And I have a great respect for math, and I have a great respect for UK as a mathematician, because it is like an epic mythology built up over time by a great number of authors of which you are one. Many of them, no doubt women, making their own reasonings on the matter and going unnoticed by the dominant paradigm, or people of color, or people of different sexual persuasion. Newton may himself have been queer. But this is just the point. Many cultures have a logic and science, but Western thinking would have us kind of almost worshipping these squabbling, flawed characters as the most reasonable people who ever lived. Even though each of these celebrity sanctified characters is merely continuing a plodding, patient series of observations toward the philosophy we're presently indulging in as an invading colonialist force that believes itself to be intellectually superior because we can explain to ourselves why something happens in our absurd world better than we can get along with our brothers and sisters, for example. So I'm asking, why are we so insecure, Kay? Who are we trying to impress, if not ourselves? Is the big daddy who made the big bang upstairs going to save us from a big spanking if we demonstrate slavish adherence to the laws of the time? Or maybe big mommy will give us a big suckling on the big teat if we press other people out of our way in our quest to convert everyone to our thinking? But everyone's communication is supposedly so wrong and inefficient and difficult until we can pressure each other to get excited about one great communicator. Instead of listening to each other and paraphrasing and helping each other get to the same point, these guys... We're arguing over who got it first and talking about grand agreements and communication, but they weren't doing any of it themselves. So it seems a lot of our arguments are about who got to the point faster and therefore which language we should all have been born using in the first place. I mean, you should read the language of the books thanking Newton for showing us the light. Uh, they would dismiss Newton's writings about ethereal vortices and Cartesian philosophy as confusing. The same reason people who dislike Newton's conclusions are accused of not understanding it. People don't want to go into Newton's writings about mythical spiritual things because they say that's confusing science. But that's the very stuff that science is coming out of. <laughs> Got a lot on faith there. Yeah. You know, I just can't get my head around the concept of consciousness, but if everything occurs in my brain, then you don't have to exist, and that just makes things a lot easier. This is just a little side thing on Robert Hooke. I think you might be interested in this. So he wrote on paleontology and hoaxes. Remember that Hooke was into evolutionary theory, which was developing at the time? In the posthumous works of Robert Hooke, which appeared in 1705, there was a treatise on a discourse of earthquakes. It is a super philosophical thing. He writes, however trivial a thing, a rotten shell may appear to some, yet these monuments of nature are more certain tokens of antiquity than coins or metals, since the best of those may be counterfeited or made by art and design, as may also books, manuscripts, and inscriptions, as all the learned are now sufficiently satisfied has often been actually practiced, etc. So he's, he's pointing out when he's looking at fossils and stuff, those can't possibly be hoaxed, right? Right. How do you hoax a fossil? Not possible, right? So coins, medals, books, those are definitely hoaxed all the time, but this is actually like science. I mean, he's trying to get at the fact that this is an observation of science. Now, when was the first dinosaur discovered? Do you remember? Um, in the 1800s. Right. But what, like, Wikipedia pretends like they go back in antiquity and say, no, see, that was a dinosaur bone. They just didn't know it. But I mean, really, the first like 
modern day was like 1800s. Exactly. So this guy is talking about 100 years earlier or more. Hey, we can't fake these fossils. I wonder if someone read that and was like, well, are you so sure about that? You know, like <laughs> there's another ex- area of exploration of faking things that we haven't done yet. Anyway, back to Newton and gravity. So there's no immediate prospect of identifying the mediator of gravity. This is according to Wikipedia. You've heard about some of these things, right? I didn't know. I thought Isaac Newton just discovered gravity and that was it. According to Wikipedia, uh, attempts by physicists to identify the relationship between the gravitational force and other known fundamental forces are not really resolved, although considerable headway has been made over the last 50 years, supposedly. Newton himself felt that the concept of an inexplicable action at a distance was unsatisfactory, but there was really nothing more that he could do at the time. What that means is gravity is instantaneous according to his own theory but there's kind of problems with that because that's one of the first times this kind of idea has been introduced that's that's heavy that's a lot of heavy material you just said right okay, there okay sorry no it's good to to clarify what he's saying about gravity it acts upon an object immediately from all distances right is i mean that's the idea you don't have to wait for it or there's no delay and how is that how is that happening? what's even stranger is he doesn't have an explanation for how the center of gravity moves instantly the moment an object has a center. So if two objects join, that center is instantly transferred to like the average or something between them that would create this point. And there is no explanation for that either in his theory. There's some fuzzy math there. <laughs> some observations conflicting with Newton's formula, according to Wiki. Newton's theory doesn't fully explain the precession of the perihelion of the orbits of the planets, especially of planet Mercury, which was detected long after the life of Newton. There's a 43 arc second per century discrepancy between the Newtonian calculation, which arises only from the gravitational attractions from other planets, and the observed precession made with advanced telescopes during the 19th century. This is all getting into the theories and things that like heliocentricity geocentricity what is orbiting what the kind of stuff that simon is working on now with his model which he declined to be interviewed for because he's like look i'm still working on this you know right at this, at time. this time so can we repeat that again so the the first problem the observations don't match up um with his gravitational theory of attractions from the other planets and did, does everyone know this? Do like all these like planetariums know this? Is, is it a discussion? That's a really good question. It should be, shouldn't it? You'd think this is huge. It's like they treat him like a god. I mean, my cousin, he's a, an engineer, and he's like, Newton, you know, the god of math and science. I'm like, oh. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But there's more. The predicted angular deflection of light rays by gravity is only one half what's actually observed by astronomers. So calculations using general relativity are closer with astronomical observations. In other words, relativity improved on Newton's guesstimations, if you will. Is that like how light bends around when it passes by planets? Yes, that's right. 
Yes. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yes. In spiral galaxies, the orbiting of stars around their centers seems to strongly disobey Newton's law of universal gravitation. Astrophysicists, however, explain this spectacular phenomenon in the framework of Newton's laws with the presence of large amounts of, guess what? Dark matter. Oh, magical dark matter. Yes, Yay. magical dark matter. It's kind of like the mathematical glue that magically fixes all the cracks in the theory, right? And that's just dark matter, what you see in there. Like junk DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. The universe is junk DNA. We don't need that. It's dark matter. Gravity and inertia are considered, are, are a bit conflated. In Newton's theories, he doesn't distinguish. So, like, inertia meaning this thing is going already. And mm -hmm. this is exactly the kind of thing they can exploit when they're explaining orbits in rocket science. Because Newton has not differentiated between this inertia and um, the falling in gravity. It's one and the same, oh. kind of. Okay. Now, I could be wrong about this, but the point is there's a number of things that even the official scientists are kind of like, uh, that doesn't quite work for us, but, you know, he's still great. Wiki also names something that they call Newton's reservations, which goes like this. While Newton was able to formulate his law of gravity in his monumental work, he was deeply uncomfortable with the notion of action at a distance, as we talked about earlier, which his equations implied. In 1692, in his third letter to Bentley, he wrote that one body may act upon another at a distance through a vacuum without the mediation of anything else, by and through which their action and force may be conveyed from one another, is to me so great an absurdity that I believe no man who has in philosophic matters a competent faculty of thinking could ever fall into it. I suppose he doesn't have a pun there. <laughs> that is a very cogent set of sentences there. It's basically, you know it was actually just one sentence. It was a run-on sentence. <laughs> it was a run-on sentence saying, I can't believe people believe this shit that I just made up. <laughs> So funny. And also, uh, another magnanimous position Newton had, countering the reports that Newton was always irate and angry, is he never in his words assigned the cause of this power. In all other cases, he used the phenomenon of motion to explain the origin of various forces acting on bodies. But in the case of gravity, he was unable to experimentally identify the motion that produces the force of gravity, although he invented two mechanical hypotheses. Moreover, he refused to even offer a hypothesis as to the cause of this force on grounds that to do so was contrary to sound science. He lamented that philosophers have hitherto attempted the search of nature in vain for the source of the gravitational force, as he was convinced by many reasons that there were causes hitherto unknown that were fundamental to all the phenomena of nature. These fundamental phenomena are still under investigation, and though hypotheses abound, the definitive answer has not yet been found. In Newton's 1713 General Scholium in the second edition of Principia, he wrote, I have not yet been able to discover the cause of these properties of gravity from phenomena, and I feign no hypotheses. It is enough that gravity does really exist and acts according to the laws I've explained, and that it abundantly serves to account for all the motions of celestial bodies. In other words, it's kind of like what we were talking about at the start of this collection of biographies. He doesn't really care so much about the origin. He's making a map, and that's what he's charting out in math, it seems. Charting out the universe through physics? But there's an existential problem, I believe, at the heart of this. The whole crux of it is that we can predict the future perfectly. It's about 
Yeah, it's about prediction, isn't it? You know, maybe if we account for enough things, we can simulate what's going on. But that doesn't lead to why it happens. It's still always perpetually why. And you can simply discount God or not, as Newton didn't, because Newton was a believer in Christ and the Bible. Interesting. Yet his... Yet modern science uses him to kind of explain away God. Right. <laughs> a little bit of paradox there. So I'm thinking that the gravity idea, so Newton just threw that out there, kind of like earth, wind, fire, gravity. I mean... Yes. He was inspired by uh, alchemy and those primal forces. And I'll get back to that uh, real soon. It reminds me of Robert Hooke insisting that uh, this is the same Hooke that is developing principles of science as a contemporary of Newton. Robert Hooke insisting that a dog could be kept alive with its thorax open as long as air were pumped in and out of its lungs. It's like, it doesn't explain what causes the precise differences between living and dead. There's even states in between, but it keeps the miracle we can't explain going a little longer and helps us name it. And that makes us feel powerful and big as scientists because we've named it. Can we control it? In 1690s, Newton was given title Master of the Mint, and he moved the standard from silver to gold, something that surely tickled his uh, alchemical hard-on. I mean, this is like he becomes in charge of the bank, (laughs) in a way. Isn't that funny? I did not know... Isaac Newton was masked. Wow. And what, I mean, his, I guess he's good at math because all of his science. So they're like, you can do this. Or is it like a an appointed position of, you honor him with that position? Yeah, it's a bit like that because they didn't know quite how to place him. He was a bit erratic as a professor. He'd get furious when people questioned him and challenged historical importance and legitimacy of his ideas. I guess by most accounts, according to a biography site, Newton's tenure at the society was tyrannical and autocratic, and he was able to control the lives and careers of younger scientists with great power in with his position. And so maybe this was a way to sort of use his obsession and neuroses at like, oh, hey, he can like help us like work on this money system. Right, he's got all that power. Get him over here. Here's a bit more about Newton's philosophy before we wrap up his life, kind of, because this is just, we didn't really go into his childhood or anything like that, which is super weird and interesting. In a book called Contemporary Newtonian Studies, it's written, Newton also came to know the principles of John Locke in contrast to initial inspiration from Descartes. Now, Newton occasionally attacked Leibniz and Descartes of having their science and philosophy based on imaginary things, whereas Newton preferred to build simply on what was true. It's laughable. He's saying, you're just making shit up, but me, I got the truth right here, you know? The laughable nature of this is is hard to overestimate. I think what Newton was trying to get at was that his measurements communicate that he has observed something anyone else can observe and also communicate, but... That's communication. Does that mean other people's thoughts are figments of their imagination? Only the social recording of information makes a thought real or justified to speak about? Can you think of a modern example of this? How about Michael Shermer and the Psychops? Oh, there you go. Only the social recording of information makes the thought real. If you experienced it and it's not like cited in several scientific journals, <laughs> it's not real. Yeah, it's that's like dogmatic now. I, th- I have to go a little bit into Leibniz. And I'm sorry that I keep sidetracking with sub-biographies, but it's important because Newton wasn't really just this 
divine character, in my opinion. He, he's got all these other people around him, interacting with him, pushing him one way or the other. And Leibniz, one of his opponents, uh, apparently was developing calculus independently of Newton. And he thought logic could solve disagreements. He wrote, the only way to rectify our reasonings is to make them as tangible as those of the mathematicians, so that we can find our error at a glance, and when there are disputes among persons, we can simply say, let us calculate without further ado to see who is right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's my guy. He even had a concept for a way to write out thoughts directly in the form of drawn characters, a kind of lexicon of logic rather than of words. And I think that means he probably would have made a good programmer. The thing is about that philosophy, Kay, do you really think agreeing is enough when you want credit for something? Because Leibniz made calculus and may have been plagiarized by Newton, but Newton being head of his society, it's alleged he might have kind of rigged the game, and everyone agreed Newton was more important in the discovery because Newton set up the council to do the investigation. Wasn't well, that common even today? In universities, professors get to steal the ideas and successes of their interns and stuff, underclassmen. Yeah, I think looking at this kind of history helps us understand how science is still practiced today. So it's super useful to, to, to see what's going on back then and how we've warped it into a kind of strange deification of the guy. In a dry textbook Google found um, called Probability Models in Engineering and Science by Haim Banaroya and Sean Mihan, we are introduced to various personages of the math world in helpful little biographies, kind of like the ones I'm trying to give here. Uh, I guess so you might not know exactly why you're studying their theories, but it, you can at least go, humans are flawed, let's just focus on the math. The, it reports that in 1710, Leibniz attempted to tackle the problem of evil in a world created by a good god. Okay? Just think about that for a second. This is These are supposed to be mathematicians. Isn't that the age-old question? He's trying... <laughs> yeah, he's trying to tackle the problem of evil. Logic, yeah. Through logic alone. It's This is the guy who believed that he could create a perfect language of logic that we could all use to probably explain the problem of evil in a world created by a good god. A little arrogant, maybe? Kind of, I mean, I guess we're all trying to do that, but Leibniz claims that the universe had to be imperfect, otherwise it would not be distinct from God. He then claims, I mean, this is his logic, that the universe is the best possible without being perfect. So then Le <laughs> the biographer writes, Leibniz is aware that this argument looks unlikely. Surely a universe in which nobody is killed by floods is better than the present one, but still not perfect. In later years, he wrote disputes over what today we might call uh, IP, intellectual property, regarding that whole calculus thing. And it truly is a confusion of spontaneous intelligence appearing in different places at the same time, cross-pollination and subconscious stealing. I'm not actually all that convinced conscious plagiarism played much part in this crowd, since that seems to be reserved for the Jesuits and Jews and other cultural appropriators and colonizers to do, to complete unknowns they wish to steal from, in my opinion. But what do you think? Do you think that actual plagiarism was happening, or were they just like, no, I did it first, no, I did it first? Well, doesn't it kind of all become part of the stew? I mean, if they're all figuring it out, and they're contemporaries, and they're all working on it, and... I guess the one with the most resources, Edison and uh, who's his contemporary? Oh, not George Washington no, Carver. Thomas Edison no. and Tesla. Ah. They were contemporaries, but one had the money and the power, and he ended up with claiming credit where the other couldn't. Just how the system works anyway, how the winner gets to claim the prizes and the intellectual property. Yeah, kind of I think that's right. Yeah. 
I'm just, it's funny. I, I can't help but reflect on these things, Kay. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get through the biography, but I keep getting sidetracked by this. <laughs> In the same text, George MacDonald Ross is quoted from his book on Leibniz, creatively called Leibniz. It is ironical that one so devoted to the cause of mutual understanding should have succeeded only in adding to intellectual chauvinism and dogmatism. Damn. Leibniz. Newton, while he was appointed master of the mint, apparently worked quite respectably uh, in his duties against counterfeit. I mean, he started piling on the research of how to organize money, what it was all about, and he had this idea that uh, I think he had to devalue the currency. For some reason, because that's what the powers wanted at the time. And he was convinced not to do that. So what I've learned from all this is that mathematicians shouldn't practice philosophy or be diplomats. <laughs> but they can occasionally, when exceptional, make good teachers, program developers, programmers, or clockmakers. Just not so great on the capacity for relationships. He apparently lived with his half-niece and her husband, and that was a warm relationship. Probably one of the better ones, since he had a cold connection to his mother, stepfather, and biological grandparents. This ties in nicely with a long but penetrating document into Newton's philosophy. It is on this site called culturewars.com. Uh, let me just read the introduction if you don't mind. The link is in our show notes. English Ideology, Newton, and the Exploitation of Science by E. Michael Jones. This is the text of a speech given by Dr. Jones on November 6th, 2010, at the first annual Catholic conference on geocentrism. Within days, Mark Shea's blog, Catholic and Enjoying It, ridiculed the talk, calling it a diatribe against Judeo-Masonic plots, Bilderbergers, trilateralists, Amish, etc. There was even some babbling about the cranial capacities of Negro skulls and a suggestion that the myth of the Holocaust was hashed by a group yeshiva dropouts in Kiev. This is a total fabrication. The talk mentions none of those subjects. Dr. Jones de demanded a retraction from Mr. Xie, who instead deleted his blog post, since I was not there, and informed Dr. Jones that if Dr. Jones posted the speech, Mr. Xie would post a link to it so the reader can make up his own mind about your silly junk. In reply, Dr. Jones insisted, You owe me an injustice, an apology, and a retraction. Please post it on your website next to the link. Instead of posting an apology or retraction, Mr. Shea included the link to this talk in a lengthy diatribe he posted ridiculing Dr. Jones, Robert Sungenis, Friar Brian Harrison, OS, and this talk. So that's just the introduction. It's a demonstration that this kind of disagreements and yelling at each other about the science, um, it hasn't really changed much. So you just made it up about the guy's speech? Now, this is what E. Michael Jones claims about Mark Shea. I have no idea. But when you read the actual document... It does absolutely mention none of those things, which sound like he's trying to associate it with paranoid conspiracy theory things, you know? So here are some of the excerpts that I find interesting, and then we'll be done with this whole Newton mini-biography. According to Jones, Newton deliberately made the Principia as unreadable as possible by adding large sections of mathematical equations of his own invention. Newton told his friend William Derham about it. And for this reason, namely to avoid being baited by little smatterers of mathematics, he told me, he designedly made his Principia abstruse. Now, that to me doesn't sound exactly like the ideals of math and science. No, education is supposed to enlighten and make simple and not obstruct. Yeah, not obstruct. Newton said inertia means things just started flying along. This reversed the common sense and Aristotelian notion of a universe in which most objects were at rest by claiming that rest was the exception. 
and motion the rule. Uh, remember the critic Huygens from the beginning? I listed the people who were taking exception with Newton's light particle theory. I mentioned him tangentially, no pun intended, but here he is mentioned again in Jones's talk. Leibniz and Huygens were smart enough to realize that in the Cartesian material universe, which Newton ostensibly espoused, there was no possibility of action at a distance. And that meant there could be no such thing as gravity. White tells us that Leibniz was suspicious of Newton's entire concept of, gra of gravity, referring to it mockingly as the rebirth in England of a theology that is more than papist and a philosophy entirely scholastic, since Mr. Newton and his partisans have revived the occult qualities of the school with the idea of attraction. He's basically slamming him and saying, that's not science, dude, that's religion again. Aristotle's understanding of natural objects was more sophisticated than the views of the atomists. Instead of a world made up of little indivisible balls bumping into each other, Aristotle believed that as forms are to matter, so also is soul to body. Aristotle nonetheless paved the way for alchemy when, in explaining the four elements of Empedocles, he wrote, There is nothing strange in supposing that brass may lose some of its elementary earth and partake more of the higher elements, such as fire. By changing to higher qualities, brass may be changed into gold, for the quality of gold is independent of the metallic substance, which is its support. Are they talking alchemy? Are they yeah, they're talking alchemy. Oh my god. Interestingly, Aristotle was the teacher of Alexander the Great, and Aristotle was brought along Alex's, um, shall we say, adventures, plundering and conquering, in order to uh, document science and I think legitimize some of Alexander's exploits. But it's funny that Newton, hundreds of years later, is so inspired by alchemy. They leave that out, mostly of the historical events on him in textbooks. He doesn't just talk about Newton changing philosophy and stuff into science, kind of nonsensically. He goes into why Newton is so interested in that particular ontology. Apparently, Newton got the idea of gravity versus inertia, or love versus strife, from Empedocles with the alchemical tradition. The first principle of the Newtonian system is inertia, or strife, and the second principle of the Newtonian system is love, or gravity. So his strife versus gravity is a continuation, if you will, of es very esoteric, very spiritual leaning. Wow, the parallels are pretty striking. Jones is not exaggerating too much. Um, according to my very basic research, the biographies about Newton are all over the fucking map. From he's a heathen, to he believes too much in God, to he's making stuff up, to he's this great scientist. I mean, it's just like they're talking about anybody. Mm. Some planned, I would assume, yeah, to mix up the story. Mm, yeah, it could be. I mean, there's that thing about the apple, which apparently Newton made up himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be like a, one of those examples. How else am I going to explain it to dumb people, you know? Yeah, that sounds like his attitude, in fact. Jones continues, The Newtonian system gave new life to the English ideology, but the English ideology had always been involved in magic. In fact, there's a direct line of intellectual influence connecting Newton to Robert Boyle, to Samuel Hartlib, to Robert Flood, to Francis Bacon, to John Dee, which makes the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of St. Matthew's Gospel look vague by comparison. 
Newton refined Dee's magic down to its two basic principles, love and strife, and of the two, strife, or inertia, was the more basic. The notion that strife is the fundamental principle of the universe would become the fundamental belief of the English ideology. It's almost like a pessimism. If we substitute the more modern economic term competition for strife, we can see that Newton established the fundamental principles for modern English capitalism as well. Even according to Adam Smith's reading of Newton, greed, which is analogous to each body in space seeking its own good without regard to any other body, is held in check by competition, and the result is Smith's version of perfect motion, otherwise known as the invisible hand, which assures that private vice is transformed magically into public good. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution is another example of the English ideology, derived from Newton, which also claims that strife, or as Darwin would say, natural selection, is the fundamental principle of the universe. Darwin, like Newton, frames no hypotheses. He looks at nature and discovers that strife is its fundamental law. So Jones makes this brilliant comparison between the so-called enlightened leaders of mechanistic English ideology and what they actually practice in their empirical takeover of their their uh, of inferior cultures. Nature says they got to do it. Absolutely. Just to wrap up Jones's writings, Professor Murawski in his brilliant book More Heat Than Light has shown convincingly that economics is in reality bad physics and that the science of economics is ultimately traceable back to Newton or at least his system as it stopped developing at around 1850. Even if he does so unintentionally, Professor Beinhocker takes Professor Murawski's insight to a whole new level by showing again, unintentionally, that evolution, survival of the fittest, and natural selection are really nothing but a rationalization of English capitalism projected back onto the natural world as a way of exculpating its perpetrators of the guilt they incur by imposing this system on the rest of us. Wow. Guilt-free money, you know, guilt-free power. It's all good. And Newton is understandably their hero because he explained a fundamental scientific observation of the universe or how he saw it, which can build up their entire philosophy of domination and power over and colonialism and imperialism. They were so lucky. The British were so lucky. It was so convenient. How did that happen? Yeah, and it's funny because... Even if this is posturing, uh, as an older man, he wrote humbly, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. I mean, if that's a real quote by the guy, he, he sounds like he's got a similar mindset to any one of us interested in science and the futility of trying to find an ultimate truth. Right. Or could he figure it out? He didn't really figure much out after all. <laughs> <laughs> In the end, as an old man, he's like, fuck. Right. I, I didn't solve that problem. I took this problem from the other guy. Ah. Now compare that with Eric Weinstein's world of science. Uh, this ties us all back into TV fakery because Weinstein is a consultant for the CBS television crime drama Numbers. And his humbling things to say about Newton, which Newton undoubtedly would have balked at for laying it on a bit thick to borrow a Britishism or to borrow from the more crass world of uh, Judaism-isms, a bit of a schmaltz curva, a real tortious lecker. 
Maybe. I hope that's a good impression. His methodology produced a neat balance between theoretical and experimental inquiry and between mathematical and mechanical approaches. Newton mathematized all of the physical sciences, reducing their study to a rigorous, universal, and rational procedure which marked the ushering in of the age of reason. They form the foundation on which the technological civilization of today rests. The principles expounded by Newton were even applied to the social sciences, influencing the economic theories of Adam Smith and the decision to make the United States legislature bicameral. It is therefore no exaggeration to identify Newton as the single most important contributor to the development of modern science. The Latin inscription on Newton's tomb, despite its bombastic language, is thus fully justified in proclaiming, Mortals, rejoice at so great an ornament to the human race. Alexander Pope's couplet is also apropos. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, Let Newton be, and all was light. That is is some uh, explanation of Newton's contributions, my goodness. Well, that's what we're led to believe today. If if you go back to him, I mean, he and what he really was, I don't think he had this belief that he himself was a god. He was devoted to the Bible. Answersingenesis.org also claims Newton for their own blessed son but they depict him as more humble. Opposition to godliness is atheism in profession and idolatry in practice. Atheism is so senseless and odious to mankind that it never had many professors, they report from Newton's writings. And here is this Rumi-esque bit of hybrid wisdom from Newton. Trials are medicine which our gracious and wise physician gives because we need them, and the proportions, the frequency, and weight of them to what the case requires. Let us trust his skill and thank him for the prescription. Oh, give up your power, people. (laughs) I mean, he loved God, basically, and he believed God's word, all of it. He wrote, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God, written by men who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. And he, he actually believed that Jesus was less than God and more than man, which was kind of a heresy at the time. Uh, But Newton wrote about the legitimacy of the book of Daniel from the perspective of believing Christians, counting himself among them. And we also know that many of the Masonic types, at least in the, shall we say, visible spectrum of the Masons, begin as Bible critiquers and analyzers before going on to justify whatever horrors they do up beyond the 33rd degree. But I want to note that historians, as we might consider ourselves, you and me, Kay, uh, were probably more skeptical in the groups of sciences because historians are often coldly, distantly observing events which were super meaningful to those participating, like burying Alexander the Great in a golden sarcophagus filled with honey or something. You know, we look, it looks nonsensical to us from our distant, uninvolved eyes. So what you're trying to do is separate the man from the myth. I guess so, but it's kind of hard because, um, as I recently wrote in a little essay on Clues Forum, myth and history are really closely intertwined. Oh. (laughs) Biographical data. What do you think about my biography in general? It's a lot more complicated than I imagined, a lot more varied. You know, I always thought Newton was like this rich brat and, you know, but then you talking about his childhood and his contemporaries kind of 
takes it away from the fairy tale and makes it seem a little more real. Cool. But, you know, we're all stuck with those, you know, images in our head of the curly-headed dude sitting under the tree, you know, <laughs> with his long locks. And wow. Does that tell us that the most enduring myth is the one that we tell about ourselves to other people? or <laughs> But only if you're famous. <laughs> so how long did he stay Master of the Mint? Um, that's a good question. I think it was a decade or so. Uh, did that position continue? Do we know after he died? Or, I mean, after he left it? Or how did he leave it, I guess? Someone wanted him to devalue the currency. He was prepared to do that. He was gearing up to do research on how to do that. And colleagues, if you can barely call them friends of Newton, said, Hey, dude, we have this other thing going on right now. The Whigs are trying to gain power. Um, the Refor the Reformationists and Protestants are all trying to do stuff. So there were a lot of uh, different things at play, and it seems like Newton just kind of went the path of least resistance most of his life. But the gold thing, I mean, did he do that on his own, or was he instructed to do that? What I'm trying to say is anything he did was, besides his um, besides his own writings on everything and his observations was pretty much because he was told to. He he was told to devalue the currency, and so he was getting ready to do that. Then he was told by someone else, hey, don't do that, do this other thing, and so he did the other thing. <laughs> wow, so not just a scientist then, not just a author. He had like other lots of other influences in society. Yeah, and he was also that professor character for a while, even if kind right. of a stubborn and difficult to learn from professor if he was telling people you just got to believe that i'm important and you know don't bring that other stuff into my class isaac newton the man in the myth indeed so that's newton not necessarily the science god that he is worshipped as being. Um, I encourage everyone to do their own research and come to their own conclusions about just who is Newton and why does everyone want to claim this particular celebrity or science god for themselves. So that concludes a review of official biographies of Newton. Now for another nice social service number, and then we'll catch up to some discussion happening today at Clues Forum about how Newton fits into the modern media fakery crisis, if he does at all.
anyway, because we were realizing that our primitive equipment was being kind of garbled and funky. And so I got a new mic, and I believe you got one too, Kay? Yes, I did get a new mic. And hopefully that will make part two sound a little better. Yes, we're being professionals now. We're kicking it up a notch. <laughs> right. I got mine on sale from Guitar Center. What? <laughs> that was a great idea, though, Guitar Center. Thank you. Well, because it it's knowledge, you know, Yeah. the dudes have knowledge. I talked to a sound specialist. He educated me exactly so hard on the Internet. You know, it's yeah, we're shilling for Guitar Center, but we're not getting paid to. So but so let me just complain about it. Man, what a stinky dump. <laughs> Never go there. There you go. It's equal now. Yeah. I feel like Mad Magazine. All right. On to part two. All right. Welcome to part two of Clues Chronicle examines Isaac Newton. What are we doing in this part, Kay? Two really nice posts by I.C. Freely in the Einstein and Other Gods of Science forum, so we're going to read those. Okay, cool. Let's go for it. I.C. Freely is posting a bunch of articles that were published in the American Prospect magazine. Right. I didn't even fully go over this post, but he totally continues the research that how commentators and writers, social leaders are always conflating science with math and economics models as if, you know, they can describe how we should all be behaving economically based on a, a philosophical understanding of the universe. Yeah, it's weirdly connected. I was like, what? Good on you, I see, to point this out. This is pretty cool stuff. Hard to wrap your head around it first, but <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. Put it in the public mind. Like, these guys have a job to do. That it's All right, our first article is about Keynes, Einstein, and the Scientific Revolution by James Galbraith. And this was published in 2001. December 19th. Oh, my goodness. December. Yeah. It's a, it's a Christmas present. It's really what this article is. <laughs> the parallels between Keynes' economics and Einstein's relativity theory are deep enough and evidently intentionally enough to provide a useful framework for thinking about what Keynes meant to do with the scientific revolution. Newtonian physics and classical economics, the analog of Newtonian time in the classical economics is money. Just as time is absolutely separate from space, money is absolutely separate from the market. Prices and wages may be measured in money terms, but this is only a convenience. The reductionism of Newtonian system is equally fundamental to classical economics and remains so today. Economists are taught that societies, like Newton's universe, are nothing more than the sum of their individual components. Hmm. Compartmentalizing. I think that's the downfall of science today. And, the, you know, this is it. This is what they're doing to money, too. Yeah. You know, I read this a couple times before, and it didn't, like, hit me. It takes a while to sink in, but it's a bit sad when it does that our greatest aspirations as a species to try to understand where we're at are twisted into how we should just obey the present capitalist system and so forth. But we're breaking down walls here. <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> oh, we're trying. All right. Einstein and Newton's mechanics. By the time Keynes came along, the Newtonian view of the physical universe had crumbled. Einstein's theory of relativity had done it in. Furthermore, this newly unified concept of space-time also destroyed the Euclidean concept of emptiness extending forever in all directions. Near any massive body, the shortest distance between two points curves around, as does the path of a ray of light. For this reason, parallel lines may meet if extended far enough. Keynes' reference to overthrowing Euclid's axioms of parallels is an unmistakable allusion to this feature of Einstein's theory. Oh, I think I get it. This is all from the same article. They're just like different sections, and he's giving like a little rundown for us. Ah, there you go. Thank you. If this is hard to read, imagine the original article. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he links it at the bottom, so and we'll put that in the show notes, too. Okay, cool. All right, the next section, Relativity Theory and Monetary Production Economics. Keynes characterized his theory as a monetary theory of production. 
giving lectures on the subject in the fall of 1933 as the general theory of employment, the preliminary <laughs> title. Oh, that's not accidental, is it? That's hilarious. Keynes con- contrasted money production economics with what he called the real exchange economics of the classical view. All right, the next section, consequences. The global irrationality of wage cutting, American budget balancing, zero inflation, federal reserve targets, and third world austerity programs is an everyday occurrence. The end result is that we cannot cope now any more than could the classics in their day with stagnation and involuntary unemployment. So, wow, this guy is trying to draw a parallel between Keynes's economics and his attempt to turn that against what uh, Newton had been worshipped for. For some time. Wow, changing of the guard, huh? <laughs> yeah, it seems an attempt. There's there's always this strange connection between these science gods and how the uh, economic gods, if you will, want to tie it into their worldview real quick. It seems they feed each other a bit. Yeah. All right, we have another article with a couple sections, and this is Keynes and Copernicus. The debasement of money overthrows the social order and governments. And this was published in December 23rd, 2013. This one's Forbes magazine. Let us in this moment of recess reflect on eerily similar observations by two of history's most transformational figures, John Maynard Keynes and Nicholas Copernicus. One of Keynes' most often cited observations from his 1919 Economic Consequences of Peace, which can this is what um, IC is putting in, which conveniently coincides with Einstein's 1919 Second Scientific Revolution. Mm. Keynes, like Copernicus, is a paradigm shifter, was himself extraordinarily erudite. It is not impossible the young Keynes came across Copernicus's work, which reportedly was first actually published in 1826. And IC interjects yet another Copernican work discovered, published hundreds of years after his death. Who buys this shit? Ironically, it's the well-educated people who like to mock Jesus freaks, Copernican freaks. Right. (laughs) Newton's gold standard was designed along Copernican principles of close correlation toward nominal and intrinsic value. It served the world very well for almost 200 years. And I see states it serviced the world for the same length of time that Newtonian heliocentricity was propped up. Back to the reading, Maynard's remarks, Newton the man, were presented by his brother Jeffrey, and thus might even be characterized as Cain's last words. A brief excerpt. Why do I call Newton a magician? Because he looked at the whole universe and all that is in it as a riddle, as a secret which could be read applying pure thought to certain evidence, certain mystic clues which God had laid about the world to allow a sort of philosopher's treasure hunt to the esoteric brotherhood. Hmm, sounds a bit Masonic to me. I see comments that it's more magical mystery tours speak in reference to Newton. As for Copernicus, on the minting of money has been translated into English several times Yet those translations remain difficult to obtain for students of the monetary arts and sciences. It has remained mostly the property of elite historians. Scant and intriguing references were limited to all too brief articles such as Treaties on the Minting of Coin and Copernicus Views on Economics by Leskes Zigner of Nicholas Copernicus University. Oh, my, there's a look at that gold. The full text of Copernicus's fascinating and invaluable essays remained elusive. That is until last month. Icy says, yes, I'm sure it was stored next to those precious dinosaur holotypes to prevent air damage. (laughs) Right. We're supposed to buy the mythology of how these writings and things get discovered and stuff. And yet we'll go into dinosaurs another episode. But yeah, there's some fishy stuff there, too. That's right. They're locked away. No one can see them. But whether one follows Keynes or Copernicus, it is time to return to the principle of meticulous monetary integrity, as exemplified by the classical gold standard. 
to restore legitimacy to both the social order and to government. And IC says every usury-based monetary system has resulted in collapse of empires scenario. So what's the worst that can happen? Basing the coins that are worth more as metal than they are as coins. What's the worst that could happen? It's only the start of pretty much the fall of every major civilization. <laughs> Everyone's quickly buy, buy up silver and gold. Sure. That's what they threaten. The dollar's going to be worth nothing. Society's going to break down. Right. Well, turns out physicists are working on it as we speak, working in physics. Success is in the bank. <laughs> Institute of Physics, an organization that helps look after the country's economy, may not seem an obvious career choice for a physics graduate. Oh, indeed. But the Bank of England and physicists have a lot to offer each other, explains Rupert Davidson Humphreys. As a physicist, I find that I can make a full con contribution to this work, I guess to bank work. huh? This is not particularly surprising since joining the bank. I have found that the skills at the heart of my physics training have proved entirely invaluable. Theoretically rigorous framework, bearing in mind the limits to which those data can be measured precisely, all of this will be familiar to physics graduates. Furthermore, you can often find yourself having to explain complicated issues to people who do not necessarily have the same specialist technical knowledge as yourself. Wow. He's right, though. We're really dumb and he's really smart. How do we how do we spend our money, sir? Well, let me tell you how you spend your money. All right. No doubt they're formulating complex explanations for the next economic collapse. For more on the true purpose of the Newtonian Darwinian ideology. Yes. Then he quotes some of the article I referenced earlier, which must have been given to Simon through I.C. Freely, which is. The English Ideology, Newton, and the Exploitation of Science by E. Michael Jones. And there's some experts there that he chose, which are pretty good. I don't know if you want to read those, too. It, it just expands further on some of what we already read in the last section. There we go. Charles Darwin's Theory of Evolution is another example of the English ideology derived from Newton, which also claims that strife, or as Darwin would say, natural selection, is the fundamental principle of the universe. Newton's cosmology was a rationalization, in just about every sense of the word, of force. Motion was redefined. It no longer bespoke a telos or goal, as it had in the Aristotelian system. Motion was now extrinsic to the bodies in motion. And uh, word for that extrinsic, oh, I think it's word, yeah, for that extrinsic motion was force. Once Whig magnets digested the lesson of the Principia with the help of propagandists like Locke, they learned that all motion was caused not by entelechy leading them to their proper ends or telos, but by external forces, which was in some sense of the word totally arbitrary, and in that sense much like the force which put James II in motion and drove him from his rightful position. There you go. There was no longer any proper end to motion. Every motion was arbitrary and a function of force. All motion was in an Aristotelian sense, goodness, violent motion, and all of it was determined by force, which is always imposed from without. In other words, as he says, it's an, an usurper's dream. It is the perfect philosophical justification for uh, might makes right. There you go. They have to do it. They have to do it because <laughs> why it's the very nature of the universe. It's the very underlying force of all as things. Charles Darwin said, yeah, it's the force. There you go. Newton proved it. Charles said it. There you go. It's done. Give up right now. <laughs> Give us all your money while you're at it. Meanwhile, the same was done under the auspices of church ideology. Will humanity ever break the spell of religious and scientific mind control? I certainly hope so. So now we lead into the article by Andre. It is interesting that in contrast to apparently desirable property of realism, official mathematics applications in modern science, dominated by so-called mathematical physics, seem to be proud of their immaterial nature deliberately favored 
due to a very special assumption about the fundamental basis of the observed world structure, which reveals a strangely subjective, doctrinaire, and almost religious attitude behind the allegedly objective form of knowledge officially supported and absolutely dominating in all secular, educational, and scientific institutions. Let's keep reading. The best science advances have always been driven by intrinsic individual creativity and constructive interaction within the whole civilization development. But those could only be rare enlightenment moments in the dominating kingdom of scholastic unitarity thinking. Mm. And in today's epic of material life, triumph, fundamental knowledge as such has lost its creative character, superior purpose, and has become just an imitative, parasitic, and unpopular appendage to flourishing empirical technology. Ouch! So true, it hurts. This hasn't changed much since Newton's time. Newton helped pioneer a way of justifying through philosophy all the ways that colonialism and imperialism scammed people. And the discussion is still going on because those excuses are still being used. I agree. There you go. That wraps that up nicely. Uh, the second post comes right after, also by I.C. Freely on March 22nd. And he continues, Nature abhors a vacuum. Francois Rabelais. In addition to programming people to trust mathematics, geometry, physics, over their own senses, Galileo also introduced the concept of a perfect vacuum, or space, quoting Thomas Hobbes, fascist exponent of Enlightenment science by Brian Lance from SchillerInstitute.org, Galileo's insistence on the existence of the perfect vacuum as the pure context in which to frame objective laws governing the motion of following bodies, for instance, was driven by Sarpi's effort to wipe out the scientific understanding that an intelligible, transfinite generating principle must bound apparent Euclidean space. I see continues, and if you'll recall from the Copernicus post, it was not until after Isaac Newton formulated the universal law of gravitation and the laws of mechanics in Principia, which unified terrestrial and celestial mechanics was the heliocentric view generally accepted. It may interest you to know that heliocentricity was disputed by some of the most prominent scientists before, during, and after Newton's Principia. So that's interesting. And he goes on to quote from archipel.uquam.ca. What did mathematicians do to physics? By Evis Gingras. The publication of Newton's Principia, which marks conceptually a radical departure from the then-dominant tradition of mechanical philosophy, we defend the thesis that by taking the mathematical route to natural philosophy, Newton initiated, or at least accelerated, a series of social, epistemological, and even ontological consequences, which over the course of a century redefined the legitimate practice of physics. Christian Huygens, yes, I mentioned him earlier in part one, was still complaining to the Marquis de Hopital in December 1692 that we find so few occasions to apply geometry to physics that I often find that surprising. For this, with mechanical inventions, is what merits most of our attention. Otherwise, as Seneca said somewhere, we lose our intelligence in playing with futile calculations. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> right? They're like, let us out into the real world. Yeah, it's like, this is interesting, but um, have we really captured what is actually going on, or are we just making really nice graphs and charts and drawings and stuff? For a detailed analysis of Leibniz's reaction to Newton's mathemat mathematization of natural philosophy, see Domenico Bartoloni Melli, Equivalence and Priority, Newton versus Leibniz, Oxford 93. As he explains, 
Leibniz stressed the insufficiency of purely mathematical laws and the need for physical explanations. Obfuscated by the general use of higher mathematics and physics, Louis Bertrand Castel remarked in his Vrais Systèmes de Physique in 1743 that everything is now accepted in physics, attraction, vacuum, and the most absurd hypotheses. Since geometry has taken hold of this science without restraint, under the envelope of geometry, one is not shy of any paradox, any bizarre idea, or bad reasoning. And, he adds, in truth, one will permit me to say, with the extreme respect one must have for Newton, that there is only geometry in his system, and good physics will disappear if we continue to let him do that. I admire his profound geometrical reasoning, but there is not, one must see it, a single word of physical reasoning in all that. There's critics. Ooh, Newton's got critics. He's not perfect. He's got some good critics. Echoing Castell's analysis, the editor wrote in his preface, there is, so to say, two very different worlds, one mathematical, the other physical. The mathematical, which we can also call the metaphysical, only exists in the ideas of the geometer. He supposes the infinitely small, dots without dimensions, lines without width, as well as vacuum and gravitation. All these suppositions are the basis of a calculation which, without them, could not be exact, and which, without this exactitude, could not be demonstrative. But nothing of this can be found exactly in nature, and this is a strange allusion to abuse of the abstractions, in transposing them in the physical world as if they were real beings. Ooh, Leibniz and Huygens, as well as most of their contemporaries, recognized Newton's work for what it was, metaphysical, philosophical, and pseudoscientific nonsense, claims I.C. Freely. They also had the displeasure of knowing Newton the man. The Royal Society and Isaac Newton successfully obstructed the industrial and maritime use of steam power for 100 years, and then claimed the discovery for themselves. In fact, the Royal Society was so intent on burying Denis Papin's 1690 invention of a paddle-wheel-driven steamship worked out in collaboration with Leibniz that it it stole his work, created a mythical story of how two British Newtonian heroes invented the steam engine for the sole purpose of raising water from coal mines, a myth that has persisted in the history books until today. Who is the culprit of that myth? The Royal Society. The Royal Society. Oh, gosh. It seems like London yeah. London just loves messing with people's heads. Right. It goes on. 1673, Huygens successfully demonstrates his gunpowder-fueled engine, suggesting that his invention permits the discovery of new kinds of vehicles on land and water, and although it may sound contradictory, it seems not impossible to devise some vehicle to move through the air. So he's like predicting the jet turbine, basically. 1698, Pepin constructs a steam-powered atmospheric pump. Leibniz and Pepin begin the project of harnessing the direct force of high-pressure steam. Pepin constructs a little model of a carriage that is moved forward by this force. <laughs> In short, an automobile. 1707, Pepin publishes a complete account of his direct action steam engine and tests it successfully against Savory's design. 1708, in London, Pepin proposes that the Royal Society allocate 15 pounds sterling to allow him to construct his engine and to fit it so that it may be applied for the moving of ships. This engine may be tried for an hour and more, together with some other made after the Savarian method. Royal Society President for Life Isaac Newton, backed by Savory, rejects Pepin's proposal. 1712, Pepin disappears. The f- oh, 
<laughs> the first Newcomen engine limited to pumping water from flooded mines is erected. And, of course, credited to the Royal Society. Hmm. Hmm. Sounds fishy. <laughs> what? I see rights. <laughs> One can only wonder what happens to Papine. Moreover, the Royal Society, by sabotaging their invention, delayed the Industrial Revolution by a full century. I mean, I'm not going to argue that was a bad thing, personally. Industrial Revolution was pretty nuts. But roughly a quarter century after Darwin's origin of species and before the collapse of Newtonian physics, Nietzsche proclaimed... God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? That's Nietzsche from The Gay Science, 1882. I see comments, now I'm not a religious person, but I think those are the words of a truly sick and demented madman. A few years later, he boasted of the true purpose of the scientific revolution. Nietzsche again, for while Copernicus has persuaded us to believe, contrary to all the senses, that the earth does not stand fast, so there's one of those little arguments for the earth not rotating, Boscovich has taught us to abjure the belief in the last part of the earth that stood fast, the belief in substance, in matter, in the earth residuum and particle atom. It is the greatest triumph over the senses that has been gained on earth so far. That's from Beyond Good and Evil. Galileo's strike, Sarpy's objective, had finally come to fruition. A quarter century later, Arthur Eddington, hoax master of the 1990 eclipse data, declared... When we compare the universe as it is now supposed to be with the universe as we had ordinarily preconceived it, the most arresting change is not the rearrangement of space and time by Einstein, but the dissolution of all that we regard as most solid into tiny specks floating in void. That gives an abrupt jar to those who think that things are more or less what they seem. The revelation by modern physics of the void within the atom is more disturbing than the revelation by astronomy of the immense void of interstellar space. The atom is porous as the solar system. If we eliminated all the unfilled space in a man's body and collected his protons and electrons into one mass, the man would be reduced to a speck just visible with a magnifying glass. <laughs> this is Boscovich's theory. This is the epitome of mass hypnosis, comments I.C. Freely. It's obvious that the intent of heliocentric anatomic theories was to crush the spirit of humanity. Uh, he goes on to give some counterexamples by Tesla, who apparently was a kind of a heroic figure in IC's post here. Nikola Tesla on his wireless system for the transmission of energy is quoted, You, the New York Times, have called me an inventor of some useful pieces of electrical apparatus. It is not quite up to my aspirations, but I must resign myself to my prosaic fate. I cannot deny that you are right. Nearly 4 million horsepower of waterfalls are harnessed by my alternating current system of transmission, which is like saying that 100 million men, untiring, consuming nothing, receiving no pay, are laboring to provide for 100 million tons of coal annually. Since I have accepted as true your opinion, which I hope will not be shared by posterity, 
Would you mind telling a reason why this advance should not stand worthily beside the discoveries of Copernicus? Will you state why it should not be ever so much more important and valuable to the progress and welfare of man? We could still believe in the geocentric theory and yet advance virtually as we do. I see comments. Tesla, like all knowledgeable people, knew that the heliocentric atomic theories were nothing more than abstract models and had no basis in reality. I'm not sure if I see is reading that comment from Tesla correctly, but it's a fair point. Mm-hmm. The paper then goes on to speculate that if this theory is correct, then radioactivity would also be the result of this process. This is Tesla versus Einstein by Mark J. Seifer, drawing energy from the universe. This led Tesla to study the sun and cosmic ray production and also to completely dispute Einstein's theory E equals mc squared. And so Tesla concludes the idea that mass is convertible to energy is rank nonsense. There is no available energy in atomic structures, and even if there were any, the input will always greatly exceed the output. From this, it is easy to conclude that Tesla was wrong and Einstein right, as, for instance, the atom bomb clearly showed that there is an enormous amount of energy. Clearly showed in all those fake videos. As you can see from there. this animated movie. <laughs> the atom bomb is right. Look, we animated it. <laughs> I see comments. The atomic cartoons clearly showed how easily we all can be duped, is what they showed. The applied scientists whose inventions spearheaded the Industrial Revolution and the Electronic Age vociferously opposed the metaphysicians, Newton and Einstein, we hold in such high regard. Well, at least we're taught to hold in high regard, right? Yeah. Today's scientists have substituted mathematics for experiments, and they wander off through equation after equation and eventually build a structure which has no relation to reality, says Nikola Tesla, Modern Mechanics and Inventions, July 1934. Even St. Einstein himself, in a relative sense, that's a funny pun, admitted the Darwinian struggle, so violent, Newtonian motion, in the early days of science, between the views of Ptolemy and Copernicus, would then be quite meaningless. Either coordinate system could be used with equal justification. The two sentences, the sun is at rest and the earth moves, or the sun moves and the earth is at rest, would simply mean two different conventions concerning two different coordinate systems. That's Albert Einstein. Did you know you had a choice, says I.C.? According to academia and the media, anyone who doesn't believe in heliocentricity is an uneducated Bible-thumping dimwit. If you tell anyone there's no such thing as the solar system or the atom, they'll think you're crazy. But none of us have ever seen an atom or the solar system, have we? It's interesting, because that's precisely what Simon is working on now, distinguish exactly what is relatively moving from what other thing. But anyway, he'll get he'll get around to releasing that, hopefully. Yeah, but it's based on observation. It's based on observation as opposed to inventing Correct. maths. Structure of the Atom by Ron Curtis, revised 21st January 2014. The Bohr model or solar system model of the atom is that the atom is like a tiny solar system, with the nucleus in the center and electrons rotating around the nucleus in orbits, similar to how the planets rotate around the sun, you know, in the official school of heliocentricity. It is usually called the Bohr model after Niels Bohr, who discovered electron shells in 1913. In other words, as above, so below. Yeah, that is a bit of a uh, Gnostic or Masonic esoteric belief. It, it comes back to those alchemist things that Newton was dealing with. Finally, consider the moon for a moment. If we assume Earth orbits the sun, then we must assume the moon orbits Earth west to east once a month, despite the fact that we see it orbiting Earth east to west once a day. Try to make sense of the following. So I see Freely is, I guess, getting his hands dirty in the 
his own official cosmology there. The motion of the moon. Although the moon is moving eastward around the earth, the earth is also turning to the east and much faster, for it goes all the way around its axis of rotation in just under a day. As a result, although the moon is moving to the east relative to the stars, the much faster westward motion of the sky is carrying it to the west, and so, despite its eastward motion relative to the center of the earth, it rises in the east and sets in the west. All this is to say, welcome to the Newtonian planet of the Darwinian apes. All hail the sun god Apollo! P.S. Think about the opening scene of the other 1968 blockbuster sci-fi film. I think he's referring to 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And he closes with a quote from that hoax master, Stephen Hawking. Philosophy is dead. Or I should say, philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern development in science, particularly physics. Very good. Slow clap to you. Uh, Very good. Yes, especially slow because it's midnight. We're so tired. Wow. We did it. We got through it. Motion of the moon. If I know. I've been trying to wrap my head around that one, Kay. Did you know that the sunlight doesn't actually shine on the moon the way that they say it should? Have you have you noticed that? I try and look up. I'm more than more than you most people. You know, does that make sense? It's, so far, it seems to make sense. Am I missing something? Well, if you just take a straight edge ruler and you get that sunlight lined up directly on the moon. The moon is often catching that light in a pretty funky way. Now, I could be misunderstanding it, but it seems there's a lot of questions, just little things like this, that we don't really question because we have our mathematical model that on the surface appears to explain everything. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that's why we should be uh, questioning this. Probably the main lesson I'm getting is that we should be questioning a lot of this stuff because it's so often used as an excuse of why we're being oppressed. Well, yeah. I mean, there's simple stuff like we can't get into space. I mean, there's simple things. They they want to wrap Newton. We can get into space. Newton. I'm like, what? No, that's not an argument. Yeah. My, my cousin said that. We can make an explosion yeah. that blows up a country. Yeah, Einstein. Thanks, Einstein. Einstein. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's my proof. Einstein. <laughs> yeah, it's funny stuff. I mean, I don't have anything more to add than just people should research all this for themselves. They should research Newton for themselves, you know, catch up on all the real facts, like, you know, when he was born, when he died, you know, the important teacher stuff. Research his contemporaries as well, like Leibniz and Huygens and... All those dudes. All those dudes that were starting or continuing arguments that we are still having today, but which are sidelined because we're not supposed to actually be having the debates anymore. It's supposed to be case closed. <laughs> case closed. Everybody knows, dummy. Case closed. Stop talking about it. Stop asking intelligent questions because we already got it solved. So. And you know the weird thing? Is that I'm, we're researching this. These gods of science are eerily all caught up in their governments of the day. Yeah. And they're put in positions mm-hmm. uh, like master of the mint and banking things. And it seems like it's the ones that have those positions whose theories we're studying as opposed right. to the I ones mean, who got obscured or disappeared or. Right. We should have textbooks on Tesla. That's that right. Guy did some super cool stuff, but there's no textbooks. 
he gets a slight mention when electricity comes along. And there's, you know, there's probably something funny about him. There's, I mean, he's definitely a prankster-looking kind of guy, but let's face it he's just as important socially and yet he's not treated that way right yeah why he wasn't did he have any cool government position <laughs> well apparently posthumously he was absorbed into the uh, ieee which is that electrical frat cult but who knows yeah. if he was if, if he would have approved of that or if that's just that we're claiming him you know he's ours it seems to me if you're not part of a big government, whatever, you're not going to be a god of science in this uh, culture we're in. I don't know. Am I wrong on that? I think you're pretty close. And we'll go over the next god of science in the next episode of uh, Clues Chronicle Examines. But Right. We'll see if the pattern holds. We'll see. Future will tell. Okay, we've got a next episode coming up. Yes. Episode 10 will be about... Do you remember? It it kind of leads in from our Newtonian, Einsteinian science. Nukes. Yes. Specifically, the 2011 incident in Japan. You know what I'm talking about? Fukushima? Fukushima. Fukushima. Yes. <laughs> the world ending. Gonna kill us all quickly. Fukushima. Yeah. So what was Newton's phrase that he used to say approximately all the time he'd be like quam proxime quam proxime yeah so quam proxime one month or a few weeks uh we should be able to put that one together hopefully hopefully or sooner or later but you know it's made out of love that's the important thing. agreed um i guess that wraps it up so before we give you another song of simon's um we just have one more thing to say <laughs> Let's keep it real, real together. together. Yeah.
Lazy, but I'm so cool. 